Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Hi, and welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement, brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Angel Eduardo, and I'll be flying solo again today while my co-host, Melissa Chen, is away. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Marilyn Singleton, a physician, lawyer, and educator who was among the first women of African descent to attend Stanford University as a freshman. Dr. Singleton studied at UC Berkeley Law School and went on to practice insurance and health law and teaches classes on the detection of elder abuse and constitutional law for non-lawyers. She is also a fellow for Fair in Medicine, a nonpartisan professional network dedicated to advancing the highest ethical standards in medical practice, and to promoting a common medical culture based on critical thinking and the pursuit of excellence in all medical endeavors. We discuss her upbringing in a multicultural neighborhood and Catholic school in California, her and her peers' views on race and racism throughout the 1960s, her getting into Stanford University, her approach to dealing with sexism and bigotry in her life and how it differs from the way others approach it today, individuality versus conformity, and of course, the goals of fair in medicine. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Dr. Marilyn Singleton, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. It's so good to be here. Thanks for asking me to talk today. Oh, it's uh, I can't wait. I mean, you are you are a powerhouse. I mean, I was looking up your your biography, and it's I mean, <laughs> what didn't you do? Uh, you are you are a, a walking historical figure. It's incredible. Um, uh, yeah, it's so. Actually, I mean, we should just start there. Why don't we talk a little bit about who you are, your your upbringing, and even your family? Your family has. You know, you have such a storied history. I really want to dig into that. So um, wherever you want to start, well, give us a little bit gee, about you. My mother would want me to first say that I was valedictorian of my kindergarten class at Our Lady of Guadalupe. So there, <laughs> said it, Mom. <laughs> she was always very proud of that. She had more pictures of me in our little cap and gown and three and a half years old in kindergarten. I don't know what they do in kindergarten anymore now, but anyway, (laughs) I feel very lucky. I had great parents and a great family. My father uh, grew up in Richmond, Virginia, went to historically black college. He graduated at 16, went to medical school at Meharry, a historically black medical school, and uh, went in the army, was at Tuskegee, was a flight surgeon, and um, 
while he was in the war, my mother, who grew up in Ohio and was also had gone to college in Tennessee, hated the weather in that part of the country. So while my father was off at war, she contacted everybody west of the Mississippi with good weather and said, who needs a doctor? And San Diego answered back. So that's how I became a native Californian and wow. uh, how I got out to San Diego and was lesson number one in proactivity. And, uh, you know, I, I think how people talk about women's lib and all this stuff started in the 60s. I think, well, my mother was the original. If you want something, go out and get it and go out and ask. And uh, that was an early lesson I learned from her. Wow. <laughs> so, okay. So you are, you are kind of a chip off the old block then absolutely. in terms of proactivity and self-startering. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you mentioned, yeah, uh, it didn't begin in the 60s. When was this happening? Just so people are clear. Well, it, it's, it's kind of funny. And, and even going back, my parents graduated, my father graduated medical school in 1939 and my mother graduated college in 1939. She had gone to Fisk, a historically black college. And my sister and I used to laugh and because we'd say, well, what did you major in in college back in the 1930s? And she said, library science. And we giggled and said, oh, that meant husband hunting for a doctor at Harry. She said, well, of course that's what it meant. <laughs> uh, but she went on to work and become a social worker despite our ridicule of husband hunting in college. Mm. But um, it, it's fascinating to me when I listen to the young people talk now because they do act like these things just started. Well, my mother's college big sister so we're talking again in the 1930s, became a dentist in the 1940s after the war. And she had a huge dental practice in Los Angeles. And I, and I just have to smile because people act like now is practically the first time you'd ever see a Black woman dentist. And I think, gee, Pat Shook, she's now deceased was a dentist in 1940. And I love telling people that because they, they kind of think, well, didn't all this just start? And it's like, no, mm. people had this kind of strength and smarts and fortitude and did all this stuff on their own years ago. Wow. Okay. So, so you were, you were primed, I think, you know, the, the stage was set for you, but Let's talk about your, you know, being a native Californian. What, what was, what was it like when you were growing up? What was, what was your kind of upbringing like? It's interesting. I think a lot of people don't realize that California back in the day had, as we call it, unfair housing there. We lived in a segregated neighborhood and we kind of lived on the good edge. And a lot of people who Again, you have to kind of think back to the times and realize history that, well, gee, your father was a doctor. You know, he would have been living in Mission Hills. That's where the doctors and lawyers lived. And it's like, no, not a black person. Yet growing up, mm -hmm. we didn't feel 
deprived or, um, you know, it was, yes, unfair, but we didn't sit around complaining. We always did the best we could. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, my birthday falls very late in the year. And one of the reasons that I went to Catholic school is the public school said she's too young to start school. And the Catholic school said if she's toilet trained, she can start school. And so that's how I got into (laughs) Catholic schools. And I have to say, there's still a respite for people who live in bad neighborhoods. I can honestly say we didn't see color in Catholic school. We saw language because my school allowed students from Tijuana to cross the border and commute to school. And so a lot of the kids on the playground spoke Spanish, even though there was no such thing as bilingual classrooms. They spoke English in the class. So consequently, everybody spoke Spanglish at recess (laughs) and, you know, lunchtime. So that was kind of funny. But that was kind of, let's say, the only racial difference, if you want to put it that way. Mm. But everyone, we still treated each other the same. And it was only later in growing up, I stopped going to Catholic school in 10th grade because at the time, and this almost sounds funny now, the public school, the downtown public school, had more opportunities, more classes. This People will find this hard to believe, but my public school taught Russian, Latin, the usual Romance languages, and something called Esperanto, that a lot of people don't know what that is. And what Esperanto was, it never really caught on. It was supposed to be the international language, and it was a combination of multiple Romance languages. And my school even taught that. And um, my sister and I used to always win the nationwide Latin test for the school. They were very advanced in Latin. And this is a public school in any event. So I started going to public school. And I remember my first day at San Diego High, I went to the bathroom and there were girls fighting in the bathroom taking Mm. each other and banging their head up against the stall door and pulling the hair out by the roots. And I'm like, Oh, mother, (laughs) where did you send me? And, um, and that's where I saw true racial divisions, but it was in such a different way than what they're saying. Now we have different hallways who knows what they're like now, but they had, Wap Hall, Skin Hall, Splib, which was a nickname for Black people, Splib Hall. And Mm. um, people of different racial groups had their lockers. Not that you couldn't have your locker anyplace else. It was just sort of hip to be in one of those halls. Oh, so it's a self kind of segregation thing going on. Yes. And and that's interesting. Well, it was. And, And thinking about the hallways with the lockers, because there was senior hall, junior hall, and there was no sophomore hall. It was like your locker was wherever it was. Mm. But people had their lockers wherever they wanted it to be. So um, Interesting. Yeah, and they had gangs. 
but nothing like gangs now. People didn't have weapons or anything like that. And the kind of stuff they did, they'd light fires and trash cans and throw the trash cans down the stairs, you know, all that sort of stupid kid stuff. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I want to let's let's situate ourselves. What you're talking about this transition in high school, but actually, I'd like to back up a little bit mm-hmm. because even your experience in Catholic school and you know just beginning there and what you just described about it being very multicultural, especially given, you know, literally we have people from Mexico coming across the border to to study there. Mm -hmm. That seems like an interesting kind of bubble that you were in, as opposed to what we kind of historically understand as what was going on during that time. So, you know, you mentioned, well, first of all, we're talking about private school, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and both your parents are very accomplished professionals, right? So you you already had a kind of different track that you were on. Well, it's kind of, of funny, though, because Our Lady of Angels, just like where we live, was, wasn't in a good neighborhood or anything. And, mm. you know, it was low tuition, $5 a month, which I don't know what that would translate to now. But... Uh. Um, so the people there were not well off by any stretch of the imagination. Ah. It was the neighborhood Catholic school. And ah. since we were Southeast San Diego, you know, yeah. that those were the kids that were at the school. But, and, you know, back then, and I don't know, now Catholic schools, some of them still have uniforms. We had uniforms. And one of the principles behind having a uniform is nobody could compare clothes and mm. so-and-so had, you know, a hipper dress or better clothes or any of that sort of thing. So we all had the same little pleated skirts and jumpers and, you know, white shirts and saddle shoes. And it's unfortunate. I wish all schools had uniforms. And in fact, <laughs> some of the Caribbean countries do that for that very reason that it takes yeah. a social stratum out of yeah. clothes. Well, I, I struggle with this because I went to Catholic school um, for two years, first and second grade, and I just, I loathed that uniform. I couldn't stand <laughs> it. I did everything I could to, to ruin it. I would scuff the knees up and, and I would lose my tie. And I just couldn't, it felt so restrictive and I couldn't stand it. And I was so excited when um, my family moved to the suburbs and I was going to go to public school, I was so excited about it. I was like, Oh my God, I I can wear shorts. I can wear sneakers. I'm so excited about this. Um, But on the other hand, I do see that point about, you know, kind of eliminating that as a factor. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted about it because I totally see the point. I totally see your argument, but man, does it bug me still. I just have (laughs) this visceral. (laughs) (laughs) remember i'm sure every when we were little we didn't care but in high school my goodness the Mm. whole thing or and maybe by eighth grade when they didn't have to be jumpers anymore Mm. all the girls would roll up the waist so the skirt would get real short yeah (laughs) yeah you know what what kathy's girl school girl didn't do that yep exactly um, we're gonna find a way pay attention and it sounds so hokey but it mm. really did make you look at people more 
and yeah. not what they were wearing, not the what are they, not yeah. the bling and the glitz and all that. Right. I totally see that. And, you know, thinking back at how I dressed in high school, it probably would have been better for me <laughs> if I just had a, <laughs> if I just had a set uniform. Um, but I'm curious if, if you noticed a difference in the kind of interpersonal, intercultural climate when you were in school versus, you know, when you go, when you go home and then on the weekends, what's going on around you? Did you notice the kind of differences in in the way that people were treating each other, seeing each other? It's, I, frankly, I have to say as a kid, I didn't pay that much attention Mm. on our block. We never really, our next door neighbors on one side, the Palmers, they were the white people who lived next door. And it used to be a big joke because no one could figure out why they lived on our street and um, a Mexican family lived in a couple houses up the street and, you know, they were just like anybody else. And, you know, frankly, we didn't really think about it. Certain things you talk about Mm. at home and kind of laugh about. What sorts of stuff? Well, this is, I still, have this whole thing memorized. Sometimes I wonder how our brains work. Um, (laughs) When I was in fifth grade, we were studying the Civil War. And I remember coming home and telling my parents that we had a play and I was going to help write the play. And a kid named Raul Valderrama was the other person who was writing the play. So we wrote the play. And then we were assigned roles in the play and I was the slave owner. (laughs) So I just thought that we just thought that was so funny. And the line, how, how do you have the black person be the slave owner in class? But anyway, I know, see, (laughs) that was sort of in a sense that colorblindness, all the teacher was kind of rewarding the people who took the time to write the play. And Raoul played a slave. And I always remember his great line in his Academy Award winning moment when he ran <laughs> up to me, because I was the evil slave owner, and ran up to me and said, Save me, save me. And I look at him with disdain and he says, I just got bit by a bull weevil. And then he collapses. Over. <laughs> wow. And okay, so this is fifth grade. This is fifth grade. So, so you're I about, you're about 10 years old and 10 years old. And yeah. I think about that in retrospect and, and, you know, and what they're doing now and dividing kids up by race, clearly race wasn't the issue. Mm. You know, we were wow. telling a historical tale, but as people living in the sixties, Right. Race was not the 50s. Yeah. I, so this would have been the 50s that we weren't thinking about our personal race. Right. Wow. That is fascinating. Uh, <laughs> that's such an interest. I mean, if someone had done that now, it would be a scandal, probably. Exactly. But I wonder. But yeah. I, OK, so I would love to know more about that. Like what? How did you how did you have that in your head or was it something you didn't even notice? 
I mean, here you are, you're, you're playing the part of a slave owner. So the subject matter is right there in front of you, Mm -hmm. but, Mm -hmm. but your relationship to it must be different because you're playing the opposite role in a way of what would be expected. Right. So how, well, what's going through your head? What's going on there? Well, not really other than, you know, smiling at the irony, but being happy to get such a great role in the play. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's like where the prior, the mental priority of the 10 year old. Wow. Wow. Am I excited? I get to be the plantation owner, not this little black girl gets to be the white plantation. You know, it it was just. Right. It was more innocent. Was there, was there a lesson tied to this whole, you know, production of the play? Was there something beyond just putting the play on? Was there a, you know, a historical lesson about this was the reality of this circumstance was, I'm I'm guessing that's kind of where we were going. Well, and certainly in that it was bad and they were bad times and Mm. uh, we've moved on from there and who knows, you know, it's hard to know what the teacher was thinking who can ever think back to that and if i would have been uh perceptive enough you know at 10 years old to read the nun's mind that Uh maybe that's part of what she had in mind of having all these role reversals and everything which when i think about it's pretty avant-garde for the 1950s to not have people playing the role that they're expected to be played. And perhaps part of it was showing how times have changed. You know, who knows? I can look back as an adult and and impute that meaning to it, that it's showing we've changed. You know, Mm. Black people aren't slaves anymore. Black people can be whatever they want to be. And um, that perhaps that's the lesson. Wow. Wow. I mean, I could talk to you about that for hours, probably. <laughs> but, but speaking of, you know, being what you want to be. So you, you transition from Catholic school to a public school in 10th grade. Mm-hmm. And are you are you by then already thinking I'm going to join the family business? I'm going to be a, <laughs> a, a medical professional or. I, it was between two things, being a doctor or a lawyer, my father's um we call him distant cousin from richmond was he ultimately was the dean of howard uh historically black college law school and then became a federal judge and he always said that i would make a good lawyer and (laughs) so by the time i graduated high school i figured though i was going to go to medical school and um I wanted to be a psychiatrist. That's when I started off thinking I wanted oh, to be. Interesting. Well, you end up actually becoming a lawyer and a doctor. So, <laughs> so there's that. But uh, you are an overachiever and a half. So I'm just fascinated by by these kind of conflicting contexts because I see, you know, we, we're kind of primed to see things 50 years ago in the 1960s and 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 such as being a very particularly um, divided time. And, and, you know, the civil rights movement is happening in the sixties. Obviously there's a lot of turmoil 
but in your world, you're, you're existing in this other kind of reality where the way that you and your family, and then even apparently your school is sort of dealing with these topics is different than we would expect. It's, it's, it's surprising to me to hear. Well, and certainly the Catholic school, even up to ninth grade when I was there, certainly mm-hmm. dealt in sort of a non-racial world. I remember in Catholic high school, it was an all-girls school, and there was one boys' school, Catholic boys' school in town, St. Augustine, and the poor boys at Saints, they got shipped around to the different girls, Catholic girls high schools. And on Friday, we'd get one Friday a month and the boys would come over for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they go to Our Lady of Peace some other Friday. I think about it. It's almost like pimping these poor boys out. But it was so <laughs> a girl would have a chance to learn how to talk to a guy. They wow. certainly, you know, didn't have people divided up by races and, you know, Mm. it was all the boys and all the girls. And that was that. And then going to the public high school, there is no question that there were certainly racial divisions and, and and racial groups hung out with different racial groups. And, and so, and, and so that was, that was a real culture change. Yeah. Tell me about lunch. You know, to have only black kids sitting with black kids at lunch and stuff like that. But this was an amazing transition time. When we had school dances, they had a rule, the unspoken rule, that mixed couples couldn't go to dances. Because people mixed dated. Again, it was like the kids weren't thinking in these total racial terms that they were still kind of more people minded and yeah, there were groups and gangs and all that, but that wasn't most of the people. And um, I remember one guy, he was a white guy, but he wanted to be black. He always hung out with black kids. And, (laughs) you know, when I think back to all this stuff, it just seems so, I don't know, minor compared to what these poor children are going through now when there's less turmoil or should be less turmoil. Back then there were still segregated counters. You know, we used to go down to Woolworths on the way to the bus to go home and everybody would get Woolworths pizza slice, but they had segregated counters. And so that was kind of one of the things you did in high school was boycott Woolworths and everybody wanted their Woolworths pizza, but you know, you didn't go in. And so that was you, you were, you were a part of that. Yes. So, I mean, but it was just kind of assumed that you wouldn't go in and it Mm. wasn't like some huge badge of courage. It's like, they're not going to serve us. We're not going to go in. End of story. Mm. So you have that going on. But then on the other hand, there's other things that were so open at the time. This, people are going to say it sounds so sexist, that the local department stores had little teenage models. And I was one for the May Company. They got a girl from different high schools in kind of um, 
different areas of town. And you'd model teenage clothes on Saturday and go to boat shows and stuff like that. And then get some free clothes for doing it. (laughs) I never felt, and nor did the other girls feel like, oh, I was picked because they needed a black person or anything like that. You know, it was the person Mm. from San Diego High. And I remember one of my friends who was a Japanese girl. She was at um, Walker Scott's. She was their little model. And it was like people weren't even thinking along those lines, even though it's not like you didn't not notice race. And Mm -hmm. um, but people did interracially date and people used to go to a school dance with someone else. So it was a little little group of interracially dating people and said, "Okay, you walk into the dance with Mr. X, who's of the same race as you. But then when you, you're at the dance, you know, you bum wow. around with your mixed race, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. Wow. So were these official rules that you were flouting or were they kind of conventions that you didn't, you just tried to subvert quietly? I, it probably was official, but not written down because ah. the vice principals would say that it would cause social unrest if Mm. these things were allowed i don't ever remember any sort of formal we're going to integrate school dances kids just sort of did it and went on about their business wow there's an interesting juxtaposition between you know the outside world the reality of you know the, the separate counters and you know, these unwritten rules about, about, you know, interracial dating. And then there's kind of the reality you were living and the perspective that you, and it seems like your, your, your peer group had about it, where they just kind of scoffed it off. Yeah. I mean, it's like people worried about it and some people worried about it quite deeply. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of it, you just think about being a teenager and shifting importances, I suppose. Mm-hmm. of um, where you're going to focus your energy. But some things, it's like the Woolworths thing. I, I think about it and, and look at things historically that it just wasn't, a, it was, let's say, a matter of conscience without thinking, oh, this is a matter of conscience that mm-hmm. I'm not going to go there. It, and I think part of it is, People then seem to be raised with a certain morality that this is not the right thing to do. And um, and it wasn't like wearing a moral sandwich board sign saying Mm -hmm. I'm a wonderful person because I didn't go into Woolworths. It's just the right thing to do to not go in there. Yeah, that's I think that's the way to be. That's the effective sort of approach. Um, wow. Okay. (laughs) That's amazing. That's just blowing my mind. Just thinking about this sort of, you know, context, because it's not, it's not what you're used to hearing about. So it's really fascinating to, to have that there. So, okay. So you're in high school, you're, you're, you're thinking, I want to be a psychiatrist. What happens next? Where do you go? Well, this is where it gets interesting. Now, (laughs) both my parents 
went to historically black colleges. Yet they never suggested that I necessarily do that. And when it came time to apply for college, I said, you know, apply to wherever you want to apply. And, you know, we'll find the money if it's private, you know, whatever. So I wanted to stay in California. I flirted with the idea of going to one of the seven sisters, which sounds like an anachronism now. That was back when Radcliffe was separate from Harvard and, and the various other women's Ivy League schools. And then thought, well, um, Stanford was called the Harvard of the West. So I applied to Stanford and UC Berkeley. And at the time, UC Berkeley, you automatically got in if you had a I don't remember even what the GPA was, but I had a GPA that was certainly above whatever their floor was. And so when I was applying to college, I went in with the college counselor, who was a very nice lady. And um, I really think she just didn't want me to be disappointed. She said, well, you know, Stanford doesn't take Negroes. And uh, so she said, just, just so you know. And my parents said, well, of course, you're going to apply anyway. So <laughs> that was back in the day when there are always pictures on college applications. So they ah. know who it was they were accepting. And um, so my parents were just gung-ho. You always forge ahead. And three people from my high school were admitted to Stanford, and I was one of them. And wow. we were all right around each other in class rankings. I think our school had about 900 or so seniors. And I think I was 12th and Harold was 13th or vice versa. And I don't remember who Jeannie was. And so it felt right that we were all equally qualified people. There was no hint. I mean, the word affirmative action hadn't even been invented yet, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very proud moment. Yeah. And when I got to college, I think in my class, there were 12 or 1300 people. And I think we had about 10 black students so um so it wasn't so, true that they don't that they don't admit well people what of certain was interesting i had examined that and in fact it was sort of true the uh -huh. first black person who'd been admitted to stanford as a freshman was just two years ahead and he was the only person what uh -huh. stanford used to do is make people prove themselves elsewhere and then they were admitted later on so uh, okay yeah so it was sort of semi-true and then mm -hmm. even athletes it, they'd go somewhere and, and then transfer so wow. yeah and and that was truly back in the day that's when they had jewish quotas 13 percent jewish quota which you know 
fast forward now, now it's Asian quotas. So, right. you know, this whole academic thing, it's very screwy. And I feel very lucky to have been in school at a time when all people wanted was equal opportunity, but nothing beyond. It's just like, right. rank me along with my classmates and yeah. leave it at that. And that's what it was. I mean, because we, the the kids who went there, we all had the same thing. I remember uh, the other girl was head of the student newspaper and some sort of student office. I was class secretary and uh, the guy was class president. You know, it was like, you know, chitted off all the things and, mm-hmm. you know, did sports and this, that, and the other. So just like today, you know, it's like, what's on the list? What'd you do right. to show you're an all around person? Right. And so digging into your uh, pursuit of psychiatry and then just medicine, what was it that was propelling you to follow that? Was it just the family thing or was it a kind of personal thing for you? I think it was interest level. When uh, I was a freshman and sophomore, I took all sorts of different classes and I really enjoyed literature and existentialism. And, uh, but I did major in psychology and took a whole lot of different stuff. And Mm. it was just more, what are you interested in? I was interested in being a spy. I thought (laughs) that I honestly, (laughs) at, at the time, I thought, wouldn't it be nice if you knew medicine and, and could help out in that sort of way. So I had all sorts of different ideas about what to do with my life. And then ultimately, I think sometimes, whether it's a particular class, something just strikes you. And, but I knew I was going to go to medical school. I mean, junior year, I knew that I would be going to Mm -hmm. medical school and that that was what I would apply for. What I'd do after that, you know, that was still up in the cards. And that, and you changed quite a bit. You did quite a lot. Um, so jumping into the, the, your medical career, you know, what happens after Stanford? You, you've, you've made the decision and now we're going, we're doing this. What, what's on your mind? What's going on there? And what, what obstacles did you face, if any? Oh, well, uh, <laughs> when I applied to medical school, I applied to UC San Francisco, Stanford, and USC. And I went down for the interview at USC. And the fellow I interviewed with, the first thing he asked me was, did I have a boyfriend? And I just said, well, that's really obnoxious. And this is before it was illegal to ask that. And I just said, I don't think I want to finish the interview. And again, to me, (laughs) that means of protest it that just spelled my mother, you know, mm-hmm. all the way down the line. I just thought mother would never stand for something like that because that has nothing to do with me going to medical school. But that was at the time when it was assumed that a place going to a woman was a wasted spot because she'd just get married. Right. And 
Well, as though a married person can still practice medicine. Yeah. Of course. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, yeah. Yeah. Now that's illegal. But he uh, and I thought, boy, because what was quickly racing through my mind, if this is one of the interviewers, that means there's a lot of people like him on the staff and who'd mm. want to go to a school like that. So. Right. My critical thinking had advanced since I was 10 years old, wondering why I was a <laughs> slave owner. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the reason I'm asking all of these questions is, is yeah, obviously it's fascinating to hear and, and it's just so interesting to listen to the way that you approached these circumstances, which, you know, similar circumstances today or at least similar situations that we discuss are approached in a different way. And I think what's fascinating to me about you is, is this perspective that you have and this strength of character, right? For So even that interview in that moment, right? Just blatant sexism that you're faced with, the way that you respond is unique or, or it's, too, it's all too rare in my opinion. I think there, there's a kind of stoicism in your response that, that I feel we don't see as much or we don't hear about as much. What do you think accounts for why you have that sort of wiring versus other people? Well, I, again, I think part of it is my mother and, and my father where my mother's little rule for us all through life. And, and this came from the idea uh, if anybody ever tells you you're not as good as the next person because of your color or anything, it's like, you know, it's not true. And it was, you never have to take low to anybody. And mm. it was her little way of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt saying, nobody can make you feel inferior without your consent. And this is something I think is so lacking now that people need to hear and people need to be taught and, and, and you shouldn't have to teach it, but you know, that goes a whole nother conversation about parenting <laughs> and people not right. being home and, you know, talking to the kids and where they're getting their information from and media telling you, you should act one way and be a shrinking violet. Um, I, and, and, and this is, you know, you bring it up and you say it's unusual. And certainly for a lot of people in my age group, it's not, it's like these mm. women, when they talk about sexual harassment on dates and, and it's like, I would tell these young girls, why don't you look at an old Betty Davis movie and do what Betty Davis would do if a man was getting a little funny with her. It's called a swift slap across the face. And mm. it's called turning on your heel and saying, you're an idiot, you're a jerk, or choose whatever word you want, and walking mm. away. And it's almost like that's not in the lexicon anymore. Whatever happened to turning, saying your piece and walking away? Mm. It's dead that. That method doesn't seem to be taught anymore. Yeah. Well, I wonder if it can be taught. I wonder 
or I wonder how difficult teaching it is because there is this, you know, I remember being not bullied, I wouldn't say, but, you know, disregarded and dismissed as a kid. And, and I was very, very sensitive. And, you know, when I would hear people tell me, oh, just, you know, don't worry about that. Just ignore them. I couldn't do that. It was impossible for me to ignore them. It was impossible for me not to internalize everything they were saying to me. And it took me a lot of effort as a very young kid, you know, um, to, to develop this thing of, of recognizing that they don't get to control how I see myself Mm -hmm. and that they don't get to control how I feel about myself and that the things they say are intended to harm, to hurt my feelings, but I I don't have to allow it. Right. It took me a long time to kind of, you know, get over that sort of stuff. And I wonder if it's a temperament thing. Like, I wonder if you just have this very strong temperament that comes from your parents who also very clearly had a strong temperament. I mean, I, I can, I can imagine, you know, your parents coming up against, you know, blatant, obvious racism because of, you know, just the time that they were living in. It's inevitable. Well, and dealing with it in a completely different way. I'll tell you something about my parents that I guess you could say is is somewhat revealing. Okay. My mother has blonde hair and blue eyes and Unless a black person, we always the expression, you know, black people know black. And what's the, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard, there's an expression called being an incognito. I have not heard that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a rather cute one. And um, when my father was looking for a place to build a house and live and realized that okay we couldn't live in point loma where they really wanted to live he would not use my mother as the front man and my mother Uh in a million years would have never even thought about passing for white and in fact she used to laugh when we would go out shopping and we'd drive up to LA to go shopping and she'd jump in the car and she'd say, I'm free black and 21. Let's go. And that was kind of her. (laughs) her Yeah. And, you know, so it wouldn't even occur to her and even in her job, I'm sure certain, certain people that she placed her, um, impoverished students with thought she was white because they'd make racial slurs about some of the students and she of course would catch them in the act and wouldn't allow them to take any more students but you know it was like project veritas the undercover mother and wow uh, so that's yeah so see there's a yeah there's a whole story there's a but there's see there's a temperament there there's a kind of I don't know if anybody taught her to be that way. You know, I don't know if any, if, if that's something she learned how to do. I feel like that's just, she had that kind of strength of character just, you know, well, it, it, innately. We didn't have any grandparents. They had died uh, pretty much prior, certainly uh, grandfathers prior to our birth. And mm. there was a woman, Aunt Mary, who was like a grandmother to my mother. And 
we go up to their place every summer. They had a little farm. And Aunt Mary and Uncle Raleigh were a maid butler couple who had come out from Ohio and worked in Hollywood in the Hollywood heyday. And uh, one of the people that they worked for gave them a little farm in San Bernardino. And that's where we stayed in the summers. And Aunt Mary, who would be, what, uh, 150, you know, so someone born in the 1800s, married at 15, uh, just like they did in the old days, had those sorts of rules and things that I remember mother saying, that's what Aunt Mary would tell us. And they were just kind of these simple rules for life and simple rules like treat everybody well. And, and I always had to laugh because it would first be because the Lord would want you to do that. And then number two, you never know who somebody is. They could be a very important person. So it was, it was very, <laughs> very interesting. And they little things like, well, you don't have to eat everything on your plate because we had to pay for it, whether you eat it or not. So don't make yourself sick. I mean, all you know, all the little rules wow. for life and <laughs> just it's the opposite of what I heard. Well, I yeah. know, you know, it's very interesting because it's like, we'll eat all your food. The people in China are starving. And of course, the right. obvious thing every kid says is, how is that going to change anything for the people in China? You know, are you going to package <laughs> up this food and send it to them? Right. I remember, yeah, I remember the same sort of thing. But for us, it was obviously, listen, we work really, really hard to get this food and put it on the table. You better eat it all. And it's also, I think my mother is, is um, her, one of her joys is feeding people. Ooh. And she takes personal offense if you don't finish. If you're not licking the plate, what what are you what are you trying to say about my food? Are you not you know? So there's no such thing as I'm not hungry. It's Ooh. it's you know. But I mean, but that's so what that. makes us all so great because we're all so different, and why we should mm. all be interacting with each other because we are different, and we learn little things like that, and. Right. Uh, you know, in different ways to approach things. So yeah. that's what's so bothersome when people do start to silo themselves and and just not talk yeah. to other people. That, that to right. me so, is fun. Yeah, that's actually a really good segue because I wanted to make sure to ask you about this. You know, how did you feel as you started to watch the climate kind of change and in, in res with respect to these sorts of things, right? I mean, you had, you had some experience with this, you know, going to high school where people kind of self-segregated and you found it strange then, but it was a little bit more, well, would you say that it was a little bit more innocuous? It was kind of like people just did it because it was, you know, a preference, but it wasn't, was there weren't any hard lines in that way or? I think you said it well. Yeah, it, yeah. it was a, it was a preference and a lot of it was just a neighborhood thing and why it didn't affect me that much. I hadn't gone to the grammar school and the junior high that the kids went to. People knew these kids from when they first started mm -hmm. going to school. And so, you know, how school districts are made up where a high school takes in maybe three separate districts and then they all converge in one high school. 
but groups of yeah. kids had gone to the grammar school and junior high with each other. So they already knew each other. So some of it yeah. was just actually knowing people because I remember one of the girls that I became friends with pretty early on had also been a Catholic school girl. So it was her first year in public school as well. And we just sort of met in a class and hit it off because mm. we were kind of, you know, in, in the same boat where we didn't know the kids growing up. Yeah. And so, so when you see a kind of version of that happening again, because I feel like, I feel like our, our upbringings, even though we're, we're talking about two different time periods were similar. My, my upbringing was very multicultural in the sense, you know, once, um, once my family moved into a suburb in New Jersey, uh, you know, my classmates were from all over the place and a lot of us were first generation, you know, children of immigrants. A lot of us were immigrants ourselves. Um, and we spoke different languages at home and we all kind of just brought that to school. You know, the, the lunch boxes would open up and it would be this huge variety of things. And we didn't think about race in that sort of way. We didn't think about these divisions in that way, right? We, we divided right. ourselves differently. We divided ourselves by, you know, who's got the cool stuff and who's cool, right? Right. <laughs> and, exactly. you know, it just gets, it gets weirder and weirder as you, as you go on. But, um, but we, I didn't have that sort of perception until we started to get a little bit older, you know, middle and high school. And you start trying to kind of, it's, you know, that, that age of um, identity formation and, the easiest identity on offer is, is these kind of immutable ones, right? Mm -hmm. Like, well, you know, I'm, I'm this particular group, so I can hang out with people from that group. And it started to turn into that there. But even then it was sort of, it was sort of silly and we kind of knew it was silly mm -hmm. for the, the most part anyway, or it wouldn't, it wouldn't keep us from interacting with each other. It would just be kind of like an extension of going home so to speak, mm -hmm. you know, like you go home to your, your crew or whatever, but you still generally are, there's no, you know, the clicks were more, were more important. You know, the social clicks were more important, but then, you know, as I got older going into college and then grad school, it was much more stark and it was much more, uh, the stakes were higher. It was very much like, no, 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 these divisions are clear and we have to keep them. So what was your reaction as, you know, more in more recent years, you're, you're, you know, you're noticing this sort of stuff happening again in a, in a different way? Well, that's, you know, you talk about going to college and grad school and seeing the divisions. I think about, well, college, obviously, with mm -hmm. a handful of other black students, you're not going to decide you're only going to talk to those people and you didn't even know them. Right. I'm sure on purpose, they separated the girls out. There were two freshman dorms, and I think there were two black girls in one and two black girls in the other type thing, you know, so it's not like everybody was going to hang out together. And oh, you uh, couldn't really do it if you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, you know, so right. obviously you had all sorts of friends and uh, same in medical school. Uh you were going to be friends with whoever you were friends with. And it was interesting to me, having gone to law school, 
well, it's been 20 years ago now, but it was after people started focusing on racial stuff more and affirmative action was all the word. To have these, these young folks come up to me and more than once and say, you are so lucky you went to school before affirmative action because now mm. I don't know if somebody thinks I'm smart or did they just admit me for my skin color? And I think what a horrible thing to have to live with. And I would tell, and right. these kids were certainly just as smart as anybody else. And that's what I'd say. Hey, take it from an old lady. You're smart. I'm in the same class with you and mm. you should never feel that way. But it's just like how you were saying you had a hard time you know, not following the sticks and stones may break my bones mantra, you know, and taking it to heart that it's pretty hard to erase that thought that you were just admitted because they needed another black person and not because you were smart. And especially when I think that at the graduate school level, that's when you need toughness and and um, a sense of self-worth and, and some ego. You need a little swag, you know, no matter mm-hmm. what, whatever your graduate studies are. You know, you're supposed to be the expert at that point. And you can't get the feeling that you're not good enough. Yeah. And I think what a terrible thing to have happened. And I think back to the strides that were made over the years racially and definitely think back gee my parents but what the changes that they saw they'd be rolling over in their graves to see kids and and it was even happening before my mother died to see kids segregating themselves and I can't quote her exact words it would be x-rated when she'd say what's wrong (laughs) with these people you know Uh. (laughs) how could they be doing this you know right when thinking about that in the war, you know, there were segregated USOs and it was a big deal when the USOs were open to everybody and, and um, mm. going on vacations. I remember my parents went on a couple of cruises and it was so exciting. They said, oh, they don't care what color you are. And, you know, the captain comes and sits at anybody's table and all this sort of thing. That that was a big deal. And here, these same people are having separate graduations, separate dorms, separate tables. And it's like, what are, is wrong with you people? And mm. it began as sort of, well, we want an affinity group. So, you know, we can talk trash amongst each other. And it's like, fine, go buy coffee and do it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. So is that, what is it? What do you think is the, the impetus. What do you think is is motivating it? Because it it must make sense, right? It it has to. Nobody does things that they consciously say. This doesn't make any sense. I'm just kind of doing it, and I have no idea why, right? There must there's a reasoning that they have. What do you think that is? Well, from your perspective. One, I wonder how much reasoning is actually going on. Let's think about <laughs> and think about no, and think about you and your experiences mm-hmm. and. And in high school, how many things you did because Johnny did it and the old, 
you know, then your mother says, well, if Johnny jumped off a cliff, would you do it? And it's like, no, I wouldn't. And, um, but, but the reason you, but the reason you would do something that Johnny would do, right. It's not just because Johnny did it. It's because you want to belong, right. You want to belong. So, so what, what do you think is the, the analogous thing there for, for people who are actively, you know, segregating themselves and each other in this way. What do you think is that kind of? I think they don't motivation? have to face their individuality. Being an individual is difficult. Oh. It's very hard to be right. yourself. And certainly for a young person, it's very hard. And you get filled with self doubt. And I look at how things are different that even in your age group, and you look at the kids now who coming out of the birth canal, they had a cell phone and a social media account. And there are people who can't live without checking their, what a Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat, you know, whatever their social media of choice is, always having the fake friends and and trying to prove how wonderful they are deep down inside everybody's got to know half that stuff on social media is fake it's lies nobody's that wonderful nobody has that many boyfriends or is that cute but the kids (laughs) kind of believe it and so it's almost like a place that you can go hide you you Mm. just become one of this cloud of brown skin or whatever skin people or whatever group it is, whether it's LGBT or woman's group or whatever, you can Mm. blend in. Now, that's not to completely discount the certain level of fellowship. It's, you know, just like doctors want to get together because they can talk about things that a lay person wouldn't want to hear or, you know, not even like you're trashing patients or anything, but who wants to hear about some of the stuff that you just want to get off your chest or, you know, people who work in the operating room have a different mindset than people who work on the floor. So there's no question that people who do similar things want to discuss these similar things. The question is having decided that being a race makes you more similar to somebody than let's say being a doctor, being a journalist or being a sociologist. Mm. And, and that's kind of been imprinted on people because there was a time when it was more what you did, what kind of boys you liked, what you liked to do. Mm. Were you in sports? You know, like the good old days where the jocks hung out with each other and the skin color wasn't the issue. You're a jock. And that's what mattered. And so suddenly Mm. to see skin color be the number one thing rather than something where every now and then you feel like, oh, I want to talk to another black person because I need to know where to get my hair straightened or, you know whatever it might be that only another black person might know about it. Mm. It's, it's not healthy to me. Yeah. 
What do you think is the, is the harmful difference? I'm assuming it, I'm assuming you think it's harmful, a harmful difference. What, what do you think is the harmful difference between, you know, say grouping, grouping yourself together based on something like being a doctor or being a, a, an athlete versus something like being a race? It, because being a race isn't you, it's a part of you, mm. but it's not you. It, you know, imagine if you grew up thinking you were something that you weren't. I, it's, you know, there's plenty of people that's like sometimes a white parent and a black parent have a child and the child looks Filipino, you know, Mm -hmm. let's say you were dropped out of the sky and you grew up thinking you were a Filipino. And then suddenly you find out, Oh, one parent was black and one parent was white. Does it change who you are Mm -hmm. that, that you grew up with the Filipino experience, but whatever you are, you are. And Mm -hmm. it's, so suddenly you're going to go hang out with black kids because you've discovered you're black. It's, it's just sort of an odd thing. And it was kind mm-hmm. of the, the one thing you can say I agree with in some of these discussions about race. Sometimes it is a social construct. And, you know, there are of course, some yeah. biological things. You know, we have sickle cell, G6PD deficiency, and, you know, various other things that seem mm-hmm. to travel with races. But, you know, that you can call that geographic origin. But yeah, it's it just seems so odd to me that a person's experience, it's like a person's experience growing up in the deep ghetto versus that same skin color person growing up in an upper middle class neighborhood. Yes, there are going to be some things that are the same because of their skin color. But for the most part, they're in two different worlds. Right. Yeah. So what you're saying basically is that that we have to question this idea of whether there is a quote unquote black experience, right? There are probably as many quote unquote black experiences as there are black people, right? Because, yeah, you know, I say it often. Um, I think especially even getting into the, we don't have to get into the rabbit hole of the biological stuff. But, you know, even something like sickle cell, from my understanding, is much more complicated and there are strain. It's it's more about a genetic strain. And, you know, there's, you know, some of it is in, in Ireland and places like that. So it, it complicates things. But, right. but even besides that sort of stuff, it's the idea, this is the essentialism that is inherent in that idea of of a black experience or a a white experience or a white point of view is is making the argument that you know kind of like what you said someone who grew up in extreme poverty in one part of the country is has more in common with someone who looks like them but who grew up upper middle class in some other part of the country than either of them would have with their neighbor who grew up with the same circumstances who who doesn't look like them and there's and you know one of the things to me that seems to get lost in the shuffle is the differences among white people. I remember one of Mm, my law school classmates who had been a Marine said that 
in boot camp when the sergeant told the guys to make their beds. He said one of the guys, a white guy, didn't know how because he'd never slept in a bed. He was from the deep country and he'd never had a mattress. So his experience, you know, is something that another just random workaday white person would be stunned to know Mm -hmm. that. So white people can be different too. And this is, this is the thing that seems so silly when people talk about, Oh, the black people or the white people. It's like, to me, it's like the people who grew up this way or the people who grew up that way. And yes, your race can feed into it, but it may not be the primary thing that makes you who you are. Right. So I want to make sure to ask you before we run out of time about Farron Medicine. How did you, well, tell us, tell us what Farron Medicine is and what your involvement is. Okay. I was introduced to Farron Medicine by a friend who was introduced it by someone else right after it first (laughs) started um, about taking this so-called pro-human approach to looking at people rather than by racial labels. And it seems quite simple. And going back to the oath of Hippocrates, where he talks about what our duties are as a physician is, you know, everyone knows about not doing harm, even though he never said primum no nocere because he didn't speak Latin, he spoke Greek. But um, he said he would do no harm or injustice to patients. And he said, whether they be free or slave. Okay, let's bring that to modern times. So that means no matter what race they are. So we've already said that we're going to treat everyone well. Our patients deserve our best care, whether free or slave. So why do we need all this other stuff? Why do we need which I say to be trained, not unlike a dog who's going to get wrapped on the nose with a newspaper if we don't say the right thing, because our true training is to treat patients well, treat all patients with dignity and respect. That's what practicing medicine by the oath of Hippocrates means. And that's what we do. And that's what drew me to this sort of pro-human approach. And I must say it struck me because of something that happened when I guess I must have been a third-year medical student on my pediatric rotation, which I had at Letterman Army Hospital, which no longer exists. It was built for the Vietnam War. And Mm. there is a birth of some twins And the father was black. The mother was from South Korea. And the little twins popped out. And the boy was a spitting image of the father. The girl was the spitting image of the mother. And the nurse looked at the doctor and said, well, what race should I put on the birth certificate? And the pediatrician said, human. Oh, I love that. 
it totally encapsulated to me fair and fair in medicine. We're humans. Right. And so what are the initiatives? What are what is fair in medicine dedicated to doing and what's going on with fair in medicine now? Well, what we're trying to do is sort of get that word out that the idea that practicing medicine isn't based on race. It's based on our love and honor of the humanness in all people. And that's how we intend to look at our patients. And we're trying to get this out by stories, interviews, um, developing these diversity trainings. And I always hate that word. It it just evokes trained seals to me Um, Mm -hmm. where it shows a different approach that to not have a patient walk in the room and immediately label him and assume circumstances about him or her because of the color of their skin, which is the direction that this DEI movement is going is look at the color of the skin, then make assumptions. And that it's like, no, we want to propose the idea. You look at the person, talk to them before you make any sort of assumption about Mm. them. And that's standard classic medicine. There's something in medicine called a social history. And the social history is where you ask just that, things about how the patient lives, et cetera, whether they smoke, drink, how many kids they have, all those sorts of things. That's part of history taking. And we don't need a consultant to come in and say, look at your diversity, inclusion, and equity principles and check these boxes, because that's what it's become. Medicine is already becoming very based on algorithms with electronic medical records where everything is checking a box, that it it puts people down that road, down that mentality of just check that box, check that box. I don't even have to talk to the person. I just see this box. Boom, 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 Mm -hmm. boom, boom. And we're trying to get away from that, get people back to a more people-to-people way. Now, one of the things we have is a fair and medicine open house, and that's once a month on the uh, second Thursday. And anyone can sign up and come in. And that's where they can be kind of sessions where People just talk about things that have come up and what bothers them. We're lucky enough to have a couple of students who've come on and talk about their experience in school. We've had um, college students who are ready to go to medical school who wonder how are they going to deal with that kind of environment because they don't think that way. I mean, kind of people who think like us and and try to help, try to mentor. We're hoping to get a scholarship off the ground. So we're new and we're working on these things. And we just more and more every month, we're getting more people who are interested, who are signing up as people hear about us. That sounds fantastic. Where can people find more info about this? Where do you direct people? To 
fairforall.org. And there's, uh, it's, it's easier than trying to do the fair in medicine to me when you do the website. Just go to fairforall.org, which is fair's main website. And then it has the different subgroups and fair in medicine you can click on. And then that brings up a whole nother web page and community page and all Perfect. sorts of things that are more medicine related. Perfect. Well, Dr. Singleton, it's been so much fun talking to you. I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface of all the wonderful things you've done and accomplished and just how inspiring you are. Um, but I oh. want to make sure to ask uh, the final question that we ask all our guests. Our focus at FAIR, as you know, is providing a pro-human approach to all the issues that we've been discussing today and all the issues surrounding them. Uh, so I would love for you to tell our listeners and our viewers, what does being pro-human mean to you? And how can people be more pro-human in their day-to-day interactions? Pro-human means to me that people are just people. And we're all the same underneath. And my mother used to tell me this about men. She says, just remember, men are like leopards. They're all the same underneath. Their spots are just in a little bit different place. And <laughs> that's how we are as humans. We're people. We're all the same underneath. And the way you deal with being human is as corny as it sounds. You go back to the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I'm hokey. Just try to treat people <laughs> right. It won't always work. But what does always work? The light bulb doesn't always turn on. So, and you just have to accept that sometimes even being nice won't work. And so what? Move on. The next time it will. Uh, that was perfect. Dr. Singleton, thank you so much for joining me on Fair Perspectives. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune into Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.